720 WGN. Let's get legal. Mike Leonard in just a moment. Question of the day, though, coming up first. And here it is. Always a hot political topic, including here in Illinois. This law is only 16 words long. Let's go to Dave. Dave, you're on WGN. Hey, Dave. Hi there. What's your guess, my friend? Uh, The Second Amendment. Second Amendment is 27 words long, in fact, Dave. But I, I like oh, where yeah. I like where your head's at. Good guess. Let's go to Jennifer. Jennifer, you're on WGN. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. What's your guess? Is it Title Nine? Title Nine passed in 1972, of course, and has been an issue for some folks recently. And the original text is written and signed into law by President Nixon in 1972. Was 37 words long. I'm sorry, Jennifer. <laughs> I uh, hope I wasn't <laughs> so leading you down so the wrong way. So close, exactly. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> Have a good one. All right, let's uh, bring in Mike Leonard here from Leonard Trial Attorneys. Uh, Mike, thanks for hopping on the line with us, as always. Good to talk with you. Hey, how are you today, John? Uh, I'm doing really well. It's a gorgeous day here in the Chicago area. Can't complain. LeonardTriallawyers.com is the place to go uh, to see all that Mike does. And, uh, Mike, I, I saw that you wanted to touch base a little bit here on the idea of what federal judges are and uh, how hard it is to get those jobs. And this is spurned on because, what, we've had a couple new appointees here, or at least one appointed and one nominated here in the Chicago area recently, right? Yeah, so there's been one judge actually confirmed by the Senate, which was uh, Nancy Maldonado, who was in civil practice for quite a number of years, probably 20 years, was just recently approved by the United States Senate to fill a seat on federal court in Chicago. And then the second judge, Lindsey Jenkins, was just nominated by Biden to the Senate, and they'll have to vote on her, assuming she gets approved. Then we'll have two new federal district court judges in Chicago in in short order here. Right. Well, short order, you never know how long the Senate takes to approve judges. Yeah, but one of of the two is already approved, so we're just waiting on the second one. Yeah, and so this has been, Biden has said that his his goal is to sort of try to more diversify the federal court bench in Chicago and elsewhere, and meaning that probably less older white males than we've had on the bench in, in other years, which is a good thing. Uh, because it's, the court's been slow to slow to change. It's changed over time, uh, but Miss Maldonado is the first judge in the court's history in Chicago, the federal court's history, to be uh, confirmed as a full, meaning uh, meaning lifetime judge appointment who's of who's of Hispanic descent. So that's that's a first after 200 years of the court, which is. Kind of surprising, but, but yeah. a good step forward. Right, and, and that's certainly the the way the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court, all the federal justices have been behind, or judges have been behind the eight ball, at least on appointments of that. And I can already hear people saying that it shouldn't matter the color of your skin or shouldn't matter your gender, um, but I think we should just remind people that these are all very qualified people as well. This isn't, they didn't just pick per, a person solely based on that. And having judges that look like the rest of the country looks like, I don't know. I mean, I think that that is what the whole idea of a, of a strong judiciary is all about. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, the judges are humans, too, as we know, just like lawyers are, John, at least at least some of the time. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, you want, obviously, the bench to reflect all facets of America. So it's hard to make an argument or justification where, you know, every judge is a white male who is between you know 45 and 75. That's tough to say that that's reflective of, of our society, uh, particularly now. And I think also, besides just ethnic and racial diversification, I think what Biden is also committed to is getting judges from different legal backgrounds. You know, historically, especially in Chicago, you've had a, a, an onslaught of judges who just came from being federal prosecutors. 
and or from just large the largest law firms. So again, that's not necessarily reflective of a judge who has a wide range of experience or or diversification as well. They may they may be the most talented people in the world, mm-hmm. but you clearly also want you know other backgrounds. You want people who were defense lawyers. You want people who represented individuals to be judges on the court, so that all those views uh, are balanced against one another. What's the track to become a federal judge? Right? Is it just someone is a lawyer first, or a public defender, or a defense attorney like yourself, and then you become a judge at a at a state level or a district level? Walk us through how that process works. Well, first of all, it's not my path, John, so don't follow my path. Or you'll, you'll never get there. But, no, it, t- it tends to be people who are highly educated, went to top undergraduate in law schools, and then oftentimes many of them come from, do come from public sector service, you know, for instance, from U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, very much less frequently from Federal Defender's Office or from Defense Attorney's background, which is unfortunate because I think there's an imbalance there. Uh, and then... They also tend to, if you just look at the statistics, you know, again, many of them come from the largest law firms. So, so there's no particular track. And, you know, obviously someone could be recognized for their excellent, excellence and, and demeanor and be nominated by the senators in their state. But that's, that's typically what you see in terms of their background and credentials. How important of a job is it? I mean, I know that kind of goes without saying, but walk us through what, like, the, from the start to the finish of a case, how important the judge is. Well, it matters a lot, and so that's why people are often, you know, when they when they see who their judge assignment is, they they want to know about that, especially if it's your client, right? And and if there's anything they can do about it in federal court, when your judge is assigned your case, it's it's virtually impossible to get them removed from your case. You'd have to show, you know, some real extraordinary circumstances, either some sort of personal or financial interest in the case that the court has, which is you know a one in a trillion, or in the course of the case. Um, a reflected, uh, a bias that's reflected against your client through the proceedings, which again is extremely hard to show. You know, just because the judge may be tough on your client or make certain remarks, does not necessarily show that they have a prejudice or bias towards that individual. So I don't know if you want to kind of walk through then the stages, John, where it becomes important in terms of who you have. Sure. Yeah. So and then on, on the state court side, it's interesting because you can actually you get one free bounce of your judge mm-hmm. oh really so you you get it you get it assigned and then either side might decide to use their right to substitute and so you get another judge assigned and then the other party might use their right to substitute so you might go through you know two or three before you get your judge but again uh it's not doesn't happen all the time it's it's, it's somewhat unusual to change your judge and you have to be careful because it doesn't mean because you get a different judge that the judge you can, can you get for your case is going to be any better for for whatever interests you have, right? right. Um, so that's that's kind of how the selection works in the first place. But as you go forward, you know, at every stage, it's super important. Let's just take a federal criminal case. Obviously, there's the the first determination, which is your client going to get bond? Are they going to be out of custody while their federal criminal case is going forward, or their state criminal case is going forward? And so clearly. You'd like to see them out. They'd like to be out. And so one of the first important decisions, either by the judge or magistrate judge, is whether they're going to get bond, whether they're not going to be in custody during dependency of the case, which could be years, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's going to influence you know, who it is. It's going to influence their and their leanings, whether your client is out on the street or at home or not, right? Um, and that, you, know, you, you go through, John, forward to things such as pretrial motions where you're trying to exclude evidence at the trial, or you're get, trying to get your case 
kicked entirely, dismissed because you think that the government has done something improper in terms of the search or in terms of the interrogation of your client. So again, you know, those motions are, are going to have a huge impact upon the trial and who the judge is and sort of what his or her leanings are, are going to have an impact upon whether those motions are granted or denied. Right. Right. So it's, I mean, it's their fingers are in every step of this is what you're suggesting. Yeah. And then of course there's the trial. And so, you know, for, for us in federal court in particular, you know, most of our federal criminal cases are almost always juries. You can have a bench trial in federal court if everybody agrees, the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney. But that's been somewhat rare, uh, certainly in our experience. And so, you know, the judge is going to make all sorts of rulings during the trial. As you, as you know, John, there's always those objections on TV, right, that are either sustained or overruled. But they're going to have a huge impact upon your case. And so, again, sort of how your judge sees the case what their background is, what their bent is, is going to have an effect on those rulings during the trial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then maybe how the jury, what the jury gets to see or not to see, and therefore on the outcome of the case. For sure. And then, yeah, as you said, sentencing as well. I mean, like it's it's every single part of it. Hey, by the way, I I have a text in here says, come on, John, are you serious? People do not get a job because of the color of their skin. It happens every day. I wasn't saying that some people don't get presented as an opportunity because, like, President Biden said he wanted to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. So, of course, he chose someone that was a black woman. All I'm saying is that he's choosing from uh, pools of very qualified candidates no matter what. It's not because he didn't just pick one random person. He picked someone who's extremely qualified for those positions, whether you agree or disagree with all of our opinions. Uh, that's all I was saying. Uh, oh, yeah, and, and I agree with you. I agree with you, John, because, look, the, the pool of candidates that, first of all, for, we're talking about federal court judgeships, that pool that gets nominated by the senators for consideration by the Senate and, and by the president to, to nominate to the Senate, uh, these people are of extraordinary backgrounds. I mean, the top schools in the country, you know, stellar service in terms of their job, stellar record of success. So if you chose any one of them who were, I think in this last round, the senators of Illinois sent seven potential candidates to the to the president to consider and then to nominate to the Senate. And any single one of them, regardless of what they look like or who they are, are extraordinary candidates with extraordinary backgrounds in the law. So you know, you couldn't do wrong in picking any of them. The hard, the hard part is is choosing one of them, right? Right. And I, I'm not denying that President Biden did that and specifically chose someone like that, or that it happens, or he's specifically choosing people of different communities. No, no one's denying that. He has said that that is what he wanted to do, and he's following through with that. Uh, just the second part is that, of course, they have to be qualified for those jobs. Okay, three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. We actually have a bunch of calls coming in, Mike, but we're running up against the news. So Jay, stay on the line. Kelly stay on the line. Mike, you're cool with some questions, right? Yeah, and John, we do have to address two things. Mega Millions and the White Sox as well at some point during this half hour. Two oh, very important subjects. Well, okay. I, got, I got 15 seconds. Did you win? I didn't win. Did you win? No. So, uh, <laughs> well, then, well, I guess we're done then. I yeah, we're, we're done. done talking, right? <laughs> we're done with that one. More with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers uh, after the news here on W. So you're having just kind of a regular jury trial. The jurors aren't masked. You know, the attorneys aren't required to wear the masks all the time. The clients aren't required. So I think that has a huge impact. And, you know, someday we'll hopefully get some sort of statistical analysis, you know, on what that all meant. And I'd also say that it's really difficult when you're when you're picking a jury and you, you know, you have a group of masked people who are part of what's called the veneer, meaning the group you're selecting from, uh, until they go up to the microphone to answer questions you know, on an individual basis. What they look like and, and 
and their, your impressions of them are so very different when they have the mask on versus when they take it off. So mm-hmm. I, I was struck so many times as jurors would go up there and they take that mask off. And, you know, really you think, oh, it's just up to the eyes, but they take it off and your perception of, of how they appear, what their demeanor like is, is so different when they start talking. So I think all those factors go into it. You know, so far we've had great success in the COVID period, even with mass jurors. So I would say it's great, but I really don't like all the restrictions. I mean, I don't like having to ask questions with a mask. I don't like having to be a huge distance away from the jury. I mean, we like to use the space of the courtroom um, because that's important to us, right? And so, you know, being stuck behind a podium or stuck at a table or stuck behind glass when you're examining a witness, that can create quite different theater than being able to get, you know, six feet away from the, the witness on the stand or to be able to get much closer to the jury. Those are all important things in my mind if, you, if you're a trial lawyer. All right, Mike, uh, we appreciate that. Kelsey, good answer. You you satisfied? Yes, thank uh, you. All right. Okay, Mike, we've got more questions. Hey, John, Come, yeah, John, go ahead. what happens if, 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 the, if the viewer says they're not satisfied, then do I just, you just cut me off and I'm done yep. for the day? How does no, that I, work? I make you okay. explain more. I ask them what particularly, <laughs> I, they do a customer survey satisfaction thing then. One to ten, where was the answer wrong or right? And then you have to, you, have to, you get a second chance at it. Uh, I'm Mike, looking for more like a gong show where you just cut, <laughs> you know, you just cut me off and bring on another lawyer. Well, we got more questions on the text line, so we're going to get some more chances with Mike Leonard uh, in just a moment, leonardtriallawyers.com. By the way, I know Schwani will have more on this in the news. I just saw this come across from the AP uh, and, and other news sources that President Biden has again tested positive for COVID this morning, according to the White House physician. And some people had talked about that with uh, Paxlovid, I think it was, is that it can cause or there's a result of it of negative tests that then are followed by positive tests, uh, as I'm seeing on the screen right now experiencing no symptoms right now but again he tested positive last week negative and uh, has tested positive again so we'll get to the bottom of that a little bit later on all right mike leonard i uh, got a text uh 224 question for you why does it take a year to make it to the state's attorney on a whistleblower act involving an elected official i don't know if they're quoting a specific case or not but can you speak to sometimes the length of why these things are drawn out yeah, I'm not sure what statute or, or, or um, ordinance they're talking about, but in general, in Illinois, you know, one of the things we've talked about before, John, which, which governs these, Illinois has a statute called the False Claims Act, which many of the whistleblower cases are brought under. And as we've talked about before, the plaintiff, the whistleblower, files that case under seal, meaning secret. So the defendant knows, doesn't know it's been filed, uh, but but the AG's office in Illinois and other members of law enforcement know it's been filed, but it's a civil case. And then they get a particular period of time by law to evaluate the case and decide whether they want to take the case, whether they want to um, go ahead and litigate it themselves. And very often that process takes longer than three months or six months. And very often they go to the court and say, we need more time to complete our investigation. And typically almost always the court gives them that time. The idea being that the, the AG's office or whoever's investigating the case, they have tools such as subpoenas and other things where they can force companies to give them documents and things of that nature. So there, so there's a reason to give them some more time to investigate. I think what becomes frustrated for pe- frustrating for people is that oftentimes they get extension upon extension granted. And so you could have a case under seal for not just six months, but one year, two years, three years, things of that nature. So that's frustrating for the plaintiff whistleblower because 
they're kind of on pins and needles about what's going to happen with their case. And it really hasn't even gotten the decision process whether the case is going to be taken over and litigated by the AG's office or whether their attorney is going to be taking the lead. So it can be a slow and frustrating process. All right, Mike, I got a question from you from a texter named Andrew, and it is a... I don't know. I don't know how you'll take it. It could be a sensitive question, but I know I trust that you are okay with it. And it actually kind of brings up a broader point about defense attorneys, and we could expand on that in a moment. But Andrew wants to know, is your guest's final objective to find out the truth or get his client off? And I know this is a broader discussion about the role of defense attorneys in general. So I don't know how you want to answer that, Mike, but I figured I wouldn't shy you away from an interesting text. Sure. Well, I mean, honestly, I think everyone knows who's part of the system. The system is not and, and you learn this early on in law school. It's not a truth-seeking process, okay? So the state's attorney's office or the federal prosecutors are bringing the case. Once they charge you and once the case is going forward, it, it, it's not their job to find out some objective truth, okay? Their job is to prove the truth as they know it with the facts that they present, right? And so they're, they've charged you with the crime. They're trying to prove the truth of what they say by presenting evidence and they're not going to present negative evidence or evidence that helps your client. They're going to, they're going to present the evidence skewed in the light most favorable to them that will gain a conviction. Okay. Even if they have evidence that, even if they have evidence that might be beneficial for your client. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they have to turn that over to you. They have an obligation, but they're not going to go to trial and make arguments for you or present evidence that favors your case. They're going to present the, the narrow, case that supports what the charges are. They're not going to present evidence and witnesses that support your theory. So, for instance, if you have an alibi witness or you have someone who supports your theory that's given them a statement, they're not going to call them in their case. They're going to let you call them in your own case if you want to and if you know about them, but they're not going to put on witnesses that are favorable to you, even though one could argue, well, if they did that, that would be more towards the aim of finding the truth. Right, John? Um, And so both sides are essentially attempting to present a case to persuade the jury or the judge um, in favor of their client. Nobody is presenting a, well, I guess what you call well-rounded case where they're just genuinely interested in finding some sort of objective truth. Right. And, you know, there really is, you know, there, I guess there is an objective truth, but the job of the jury is to decide whether they, whether the defendant's been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Not truth but whether the government has come forward with sufficient evidence to prove the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense lawyer's job is, again, uh, quite candidly, it's not to come up with some objective truth. It's to try to put the government to the test and, and see that whether they can uh, prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's your job. Right. And, your and, job is not to, you know, your job is not to give the government um, uh, unfavorable things pass. to your client or right. to, or to, or to try their case for them. And, and likewise, they're not doing that for you either. You know, So it's not a truth-seeking system that we have. Others, other countries, that is their goal, and therefore the approach would be very different, right, if that was the goal of both sides or one side to come up with an objective truth. That's not how really how our system works, right. fortunately or unfortunately. And also we can't like pick and choose who we want to have good defenses because or representation based on whether you think they're guilty or not before the trial because – the system is designed that everyone gets it that way when there are completely innocent people that they are they are afforded that 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 defense right that's how the system holds together i guess you could say yeah you you can't be a defense lawyer if you don't if you don't agree with the concept that everyone's entitled to a robust defense and everyone's entitled to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt 
if you don't agree with that concept, then, then you can't do the job, of course. Right. And people have a problem with that. People have a problem with saying, okay, well, we, we think they're guilty or the evidence looks overwhelming. Why do we bother? But, but that's the whole funder, right. you know, counter, that's the whole you know, touchstone of our system. And, of course, we know there's been many, many times, including people who've been executed, who've been found out later to be innocent One, and, and, and have had nothing to do with the crime. So uh, we, we all know that that doesn't happen every in every case or every day. But it does but happen. Exactly. We have. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Mike. I just got to get a break to a news. Do you have five more minutes for us after the news? I hate to put you on the spot. John, that would be great. All right. We'll, we'll get to because I've got a couple more questions here for you. Uh, we'll do that after yeah. the news from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom, which comes after this break on Let's Get Legal on WGN. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, with host John Hansen. Today's show is sponsored by Leonard Trial Lawyers, Allen and Glassman Chartered, and Anderson Attorneys and Advisors. Now, here's John Hansen, and let's get legal. That's right, and we got Mike Leonard bonus time. It's like overtime, Mike, in that it's we didn't expect it, and it's exactly five minutes long. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. For- wow, is the clock is the clock going to tick down too dramatically? Oh, it is. Work? Yeah, exactly. We'll see how you do. Let's see if you come out a winner. No, uh, and really, this case has been so uh, huge here in the Chicagoland area. Of course, the Highland Park parade shooting and uh, Robert Cremo uh, indicted by a grand jury on 117 counts, and uh, you, you, it stretches your mind a, a little bit that you know someone is, of course, still entitled to a defense, but that's the system that we have, and I know that's an important part of our, uh, our functioning society and criminal justice system. But, Mike, what at this point can lawyers do for him or do for the community to try and f- bring this to some resolution that will, of course, not bring any peace or sense of uh, okay, but just can get can move this along? Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be nothing satisfying about the outcome of this case. And, uh, you know, s- some people won't like the fact that Illinois doesn't have the death penalty. That they'll be very disappointed with that outcome. But, right. I mean, if we if we accept as true all that's been reported publicly is that, you know, they have this wealth of evidence against him. And, and he's already given a statement where he's fully acknowledged his guilt and participation, then, of course, you know, his, his defense attorney's job is going to be very different than the, than the average case. I mean, they're still going to have to do things like do their due diligence and, and make sure that the statements weren't coerced, make sure the evidence is what the what the government says it is, of course. But then they're going to have a very different role, you know, because it's going to be a role that's preparing for a sentencing hearing. Uh, and before they even make that decision, they're going to make sure that you know, they gather all sorts of records about this individual's entire life, including mental health records, school records, uh, interview everybody under the sun to get a clear understanding of what this individual's mental mental capacity was. You know, is there any hope to plead an insanity offense? Is the defendant competent to go to trial? He's not going to go to trial, but is he competent to face these proceedings? So, Wait, wait why do you say he's not going to? You, you don't think there's no way this goes to trial in any way, shape, or form? Well, look, if we accept as true what's been said publicly, right. which I don't know and I'm not privy to it, but if he if he gave a full confession right. uh, under circumstances that were constitutional, where he was apprised of his rights and knowingly uh, waived those rights, and he gave a full compl- confession, it was detailed like the press has reported, and we, they also have the the gun, and it has his prints and DNA, and it's registered to him. And, you know, if, if this all adds up publicly, then I don't think there's ever going to be a trial. What we're probably going to see is a sentencing hearing. It's possible that there could be a hearing on competency of him if the, if the if the defense counsel thought there was an ability to muster 
an insanity defense or an incompetency defense. We might have hearings on those issues. But in terms of a trial where we're proving his guilt or innocence, that seems very unlikely based upon what's been reported publicly. So it sounds like it's going to result in a plea. And then what will be the most crucial step will be the sentencing hearing. And, of course, the defense counsel's uh, duty would be to present as much mitigation as they can to try to get the best result for their client. However, under these circumstances with this many um, people yeah. um, killed and injured, um, you know, we, we, there's not much expectation that something beyond, you know, multiple life sentences are going to be the result. Um, but again, you don't, you don't foreordain these things if you're his attorney. You go, you're going to have to go through all the steps. But do I think there's going to be a trial on guilt or innocence? You know, whether they can prove him guilty doesn't sound very likely at all, John. Right. Uh, We've got two more minutes left. The Eddie Johnson case, I know you've been a part of uh, that, and uh, we had a ruling recently about this. Yeah, we're moving along, uh, moving along swiftly in terms of taking dozens of depositions in that case, and the magistrate judge who's assigned to that case, every case in federal court that's a civil case, has a magistrate judge assigned that deals with issues that come up about depositions and disputes about the parties about producing documents. He recently issued a written opinion because there was a witness who testified in the case. And again, I'm not telling you anything that's not public and what's not in his opinion. Right. But a witness testified uh, you know, purportedly on behalf of the plaintiff who's bringing the case against Eddie Johnson. And it turned out that witness had certain relevant documents on his phone, such as photos of the plaintiff, perhaps communications with the plaintiff, and the argument was made that these, these things need to be turned over because, on the one hand, the plaintiff is arguing that she's suffering severe emotional distress. And on the other hand, this witness is saying, oh, I have a bunch of pictures where the individual who was the plaintiff was on vacation in Mexico and other places, which, of course, would undercut the argument, you know, probably that she's suffering severe emotional distress and can't leave the house. So you can yeah. actually depose evidence that has nothing necessarily to do with uh, the what allegedly happened or didn't happen, but about the current state or the current uh, damages that someone could claim are, are have been done to them? Well, the rel- relatives of this witness, would, which would be called the third-party witness, meaning they're, they're a fact witness, they're not the plaintiff, they're not the defendant, but they have relevant knowledge, meaning that they've had communications with the plaintiff in this case during the time period that we're talking about when the Johnson relationship was going on with the plaintiff. So those communications and what the plaintiff was saying about her relationship with with Eddie Johnson, of course, would be relevant. And then secondly, with regard to the issue of damages, yeah, there there are witnesses who might be relevant only to the question of damages in the case, including uh, if someone's claiming emotional distress, there might be all sorts of fact witnesses, John, maybe a neighbor, a close friend, a family member who could either establish, yeah, that's true, this person can't leave the house, they're acting like they have PTSD, here's what I see, or the witness could be testifying just to the contrary. No, I don't see any evidence of emotional distress damages. I see a person who's doing all the activities they were before, right. they're taking vacations, they're doing this or that. So, yeah, these fact witnesses can be you know, relevant for a wide variety of purposes in, in any case. Last question, not to backtrack, but we did have a good text from the A47 uh, going back to the Cremo case in uh, Highland Park. Can the father be held responsible for signing off for him to get a gun? Based on what you've read, anything? I know we kind of touched on that a little bit when we chatted last. Any any different uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's two issues. One is whether he's going to be subject to any criminal liability. And secondly, can he be subject to a civil suit, which are completely different legal standards? I find it. From again, we're operating from what we know publicly, mm-hmm. and I don't think that I don't think that what we know of, of in terms of the father that he violated the law. You know, of course, many of us would say 
that's stupid, that's absurd, that's reckless. You know, how could you sign off uh, on the kid getting a gun when you knew that just months before he had 19 knives? If we take that all true, it makes no sense, right? Um, however, he probably won't be charged criminally for that decision, even though we would all probably agree as citizens and parents and as brothers and sisters, that would make no sense. And we hope that we would never make that same decision. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it equates to criminal liability. Certainly, um, there may be civil lawsuits that arise out of this. Again, the question will be whether they're worth pursuing based upon you know the financial wherewithal of the people you name as defendants. So he certainly could be subject to civil suits, but I don't think he's going to be criminally charged. Again, operating off what we all kind of know publicly, but we certainly don't agree that the conduct made any sense right. and that it wasn't reckless. Oh. But uh, and I would, and, you know, none of us would ever think that we would ever do that. But I don't think it's a crime. Uh, and so yeah. people may find that fortunate or unfortunate, you know. Yeah, it's just that's how laws are, right? We don't, we don't. The laws aren't done based on what we feel on that day, or, or our emotions, or um, you know, mentality of all of us disagreeing with a decision morally or ethically. It's about a legal decision that has to be made. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mike, I'm sorry. To... Yeah. When you're, yeah, whether you're a lawyer or not, I think we all come out in the same place. You know, yeah. how, how could that decision be made? Right. You know, whether you're a lawyer or not a lawyer. I think we're all in the same place in how we evaluate that that decision, you know, and, and how sad and tragic that was to make that decision. For sure. Hey, Mike, it was great to chat with you again. I really appreciate giving us some extra time today, okay? John, always enjoy it. Thanks, man. Have a good weekend. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Mike Leonard, leonardtriallawyers.com is where you can find out more.